Hey, welcome to another episode of G220 Radio. This is episode number 510. 510. We are at episode 510. We are dealing with the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 29 of baptism, of baptism. And it's very interesting because I don't know if you saw this, Mike. I know you're a busy man working throughout the day. But I had decided to put, you know, kind of to get people thinking about baptism, I put like four questions up on my Facebook page dealing with baptism. Some that I think maybe we can kind of talk about here tonight as well, since we're dealing with baptism from the 1689 chapter 29. But man, those Presbyterians came out of nowhere. Like I haven't they seen do. them on my Facebook page in a while. And they just came like on every, you know, Baptist kind of believer and just like, going in on them. And I'm like, man, guys, it wasn't even the point of my question to, to strike up a uh, conversation or debate with my Pado baptist brothers. But um, <clears throat> but yeah, this is a topic that is is uh, touchy. It's touchy for some, but it's important. It's an important one. Yeah. I mean, not that we would say that Presbyterians are unbelievers, but you know, they just didn't quite finish the Reformation. They just need to go a little bit farther and rethink about, you know, some of these things. And yeah. Do what the early church did. Baptize believers, not babies. <laughs> right. And so that's what we're going to be talking about here tonight on uh, G220 Radio. Again, 510 episodes. It's very, very... Uh, uh, fascinating it's it's encouraging it's exciting to know that we've been around for 510 episodes i don't know how many years this turns into but i was looking today for an episode i couldn't find it um, i'm sure it's in podbean i'd have to go look and um, i just hadn't pulled it up but on apple itunes it only goes back so far and then some of these other catchers they only go so far back so I couldn't go all the way to the beginning because I was trying to find episode 145 where we had a conversation dealing with Marcus Rogers. He was supposed to come on to our program. And I'm thinking this was like 2014 or 2015, something like that. And just to think that was episode 145 and it was either 2014 or 2015, but that was 145. And here we are in 2021, 510 episodes. I mean, that, that's just, it's amazing to me. Um, I shared another thing the other day on Facebook that we had two point some thousand people interacting on the Facebook page or seeing things on the Facebook page, I should say. And, and I thought, man, in the last seven days, that many people have had their eyes on our Facebook page. And that's small compared to some, there's some really large um, Christian podcasts that probably get a lot more views than that, probably get a lot more downloads than we get. But the reality is, obviously, we don't necessarily do this for clicks. We do want to reach people. We do want to speak truth and uh, talk about the Bible and, and be an influence uh, to people. But our main concern and main goal is ultimately we enjoy talking about the things of the Lord and we want to encourage other brothers and sisters in the things of the Lord as well and leave a legacy so that our children. Mike and I both have kids that they can come back and look at 500 and some plus episodes. And probably by the time we, you know, they're grown up, maybe we're at a thousand some episodes and they have a thousand some episodes that they can consume and go back and watch and listen to what 
their dads talked about when it comes to theology and what the Bible says on different topics. And, and that's a legacy we want to leave. Ultimately, we may have a smaller audience than some, because there's some really great podcasts out there. I mean, there's some really good podcasts that do well with teaching and leading you to truth. And, um, but we, we definitely want to legal, leave a legacy for our children to look back and then go to these 1689 series and say, what did my dad say about this on baptism? Hopefully they're not pedo, you know, as they get older. And... I mean, they won't be receiving communion in my church. Tell you that. Well, I guess so, because they would have to become believers. And then essentially they would have been ex- exercising the right administration of baptism. Yeah. Nice. John Ahart is in the chat. So hi, John. On He's watching on Facebook. We want to thank you for tuning in. Hey, go and share this. Share this episode, whether you're watching it on Facebook, on our YouTube channel page, uh, or you're watching it, on, I mean, on Facebook page or our YouTube channel page. Go and share it on your social media. It's even on Twitter. We're on Twitter right now. So um, <clears throat> go and share it wherever you may be. Uh, let other people know we are talking about baptism tonight. Baptism, baptism, baptism. And we're going to pull this up here because we're going to get into it. Now, we, we've talked about this before, Mike. We've talked about the fact that these some of these chapters are short, and yet we still are able to consume an hour's time with these shorter chapters because there's so much we can talk about when it comes to baptism here or when it comes to other chapters within the 1689. And one of the great things that we have said over and over again in this series of the 1689 is that confessions, creeds are important. We even talked about it last week when we had Phil Dutry on the program. We talked about his book. We talked about uh, Deuteronomy, about the importance of creeds and confessions. Creeds and confessions. So, Mike, why don't you go ahead for a refresher to our listeners, explain to them the importance of why we think it's important not to get rid of confessions, these old confessions, especially the 1689, because we are Baptist, but why this is important for us to kind of utilize them today. Yeah, so we talked a little bit, even on the roundtable, a little bit. Um, the confessions, creeds, confessions, and catechisms, kind of group them, they all kind of serve in similar functions. And we kind of do creeds as more universally accepted so there's only very few ecumenical creeds in the early church and they're very specific in all of their doctrines what they cover we've talked about the nicene creed and the nicene creed while it touches a little bit on the father a little bit on the son or a little bit on the spirit a little bit on the church what these mean they also cover a lot on the divinity and the human aspect of christ that he's fully god god of god light of light very god of very god begotten not made being of one substance with the father through him all things are made and so you have that type of language and so creeds are very good at being succinct about what we believe and kind of proving a point in it the same with the apostles creed um which is a little bit more drawn out and then you get confessions and like here in the Second London or the Westminster or the Savoy, Three Forms Unity, whatever you want to kind of follow. Um, confessions are really 
statements on what we think the Bible teaches. It's in one way, a micro systematic theology. We are putting these different ideas that we think are essential to who we are. And so you're going to have where the Nicene Creed kind of mentions God of God, light of light, very God of very God of Jesus, or how he became man born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. The creeds allow us to kind of break that out more. What does it mean? What is the church? What are the sacraments? We've covered that last week. And so it's a, a theology of what we believe. And conf, um, catechisms usually go with confessions, and they're just the teaching tools, question-answer styles that help us to remember. So when we, when you ask a kid who's been going through a confession – who made you? And they say, God made me. Or you tell them, you ask them, how do we, where do we learn how to love and obey God? And they go back in the Bible alone that these teaching, these questions, answers help us to teach us these deep truths, but also give us the language to talk about these truths, to mm. flesh them out. Creeds, confessions, and catechisms are not just thrown together. They are carefully built. They yes. are thought about. They are the fullness of the expression. And that, in one sense, every word matters. And we would say the same to the Bible. Mm -hmm. Every word matters. And so we use creeds, confessions, and catechisms as statements of what we believe the Bible is saying. And that doesn't make them inspired. That's why you see the differences between the Westminster and the Baptist, and we can say these are fallible documents. But they are based on and help us to understand better the Bible as a reflection of what we believe the Bible to say, says. So you can't hold to the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith and be an Arian. It's not possible. Right. The confession openly denies it. And so that's kind of the importance of confessions, creeds. And every church has one mm -hmm. that they would hold to, whether it's written like the 1689 or the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 as kind of more of a modern example. But people have their churches hold, they have standards in which you to believe. It may be kind of implied where you believe a certain dispensational view, a certain pre-trib view, or a certain inspiration of the Bible. But these are all kind of still creeds and confessions. There's really no such thing as no creed about the Bible. Right. Because that, that's a creed. That's a creed. Yeah. Is making a statement about it. And that when you make kind of true statements and kind of these ways to teach others, that's again kind of similar to having a confession. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I and I think if you were to hold to the 1689, uh, the Savoy, the Westminster, and I know 
for a fact <clears throat> that if you are a Reformed 1689 Baptist, that the majority, I shouldn't say no for a fact, but the majority of 1689 churches will take their people through the 1689 Confession to help them understand what they believe as a church. And it also teaches, because when we started the 1689 on chapter one, dealing with the Holy Scriptures, we went through the Scripture. What does the what what do we believe about the scriptures? And so it teaches your people within your your congregation what these different chapters are covering, what we believe as Christians in this Reformed 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith Church. And the same would be for our Presbyterian brothers with the Westminster or those that hold to the Savoy. And so let's get into this tonight because, again, we want to deal with of baptism. And we're going to be using founders tonight um, when it comes to their um, modern English uh, version of the 1689. Normally we use <clears throat> the old, old 1689, but I thought we'll just kind of mix it up a little bit tonight here. All right, let's pull this a little bit bigger. So baptism, when it comes to baptism... Chapter 29, paragraph 1, and there's only four paragraphs here for baptism, but we're going to, uh, like we said, it, it once we get to talking on this, you're going to see it's going to uh, take the majority of the program anyways. So baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to those baptized. It is a sign of their fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of their being grafted into him, of remission of sins, and of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in the newness of life. Man, so we we talked a little bit about it when we dealt with chapter 28, right? We, we talked about the ordinances. We talked about what these ordinances are. The two ordinances that Baptists have is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Next week, we'll deal with the Lord's Supper. And well, not next week, the next time we get on to the 1689, we'll deal with chapter 30. But baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament. So when we say ordinance, I mean, some could use the term sacrament. We've, I think, we've talked about that before in the past. Um, but we use this, the Baptists use this word ordinance, and it is an ordinance of the New Testament. We don't see like Roman Catholicism where they have all these different sacraments. We see in the New Testament, it's instituted baptism, and we see the Lord's Supper. And so baptism is an ordinance, and it's ordained by Jesus Christ. It's ordained by Christ. Yeah, there's, um, to think about it, and kind of all Christians, or at least in Christendom, hold that baptism is an ornament ordinance or sacrament so baptists aren't being new in one sense mm -hmm. with what they're saying um you look at um the westminster baptism is a sacrament so they use the word sacrament of the new testament ordered by christ by jesus christ the savoy baptism is a sacrament of the new testament ordained by jesus christ they all start the same way so again, we're not, the Baptists aren't completely thinking of something 
new. They understand what that baptism is in ordinance, that it was instituted by Christ, um, not only by example, when he was baptized at the beginning of his ministry, mm-hmm. but also in the Great Commission, that the disciples are to were called to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I know um, this will come up, uh, I think it's in three. Yeah, paragraph three. So not to draw on it, but you, we see this idea. And not only that, Acts shows us that's what they did. They preached the gospel. People got saved. People were added to the church, and they were baptized. Mm-hmm. And so we can see a kind of a clear method of what was happening in the church of Acts. And which also shows that the spirit wasn't opposing this, that this was ordained not only by Christ, but as a triune God, as their saving people to be the method in which people are brought into the church. I got to think I'm probably getting ahead of myself. Um, a little bit and to, to think about just even what the church is from a couple chapters ago. And so again, we're not Baptists here. We're not reinventing the wheel. We're not digging up some old heresy here. We fall in line of the apostles from the beginning. Um, that baptism is what God has given the church to do. Um, as we've seen in the example of Christ and also the examples of the disciples in Acts. Yeah. And, and as you said here, you know, um, it's, I mean, we can get into that, this fact that, that we, we as Baptists, many Baptists, um, I, I can't broad brush it because I, I run into some Baptists sometimes and I'm like, are you really Baptist? <laughs> but so there are people that may have the name, but um, the majority of Baptist churches we'll call them will call free church. Yeah, will baptize people into the membership of their local body. Um, I don't think it's a wise thing, because we're going to get into those who, um, paragraph two, but I don't think it's a wise thing for a church to just baptize someone and then leave them out on their own. Because as you already mentioned, to go to go with it to hey we're going to baptize you but go go find another church right because the bible says in Matthew 28 which you brought up that the great commission was given to go or all authority was given to Christ and he says therefore go make make disciples baptizing them in the name of the father son and spirit and teaching them to observe all that he has taught and so we see that <clears throat> all throughout the book of acts we see these the the descriptive work of these disciples as it's being laid out the churches are being built, and then we see the epistles and Paul coming in with his writings and basically laying out the structure of the church. And God gives gifts to the church, you know, these men to teach and build up to edify the saints to go do the work of the ministry. And so in that, we do believe that this, as Baptist, is you're baptizing someone into the membership of that church. Now, I think it's very important that we make it clear because I had somebody asking me this today, sending me messages, asking me, does baptism, basically, 
is baptism necessary for salvation? Is it is it part of salvation? And we would say no. Baptism does not save. It is an it is being obedient and responding to the faith that you have, right? Because we are saved by faith, by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Um, we're justified by faith alone, it says in Romans 3.21. So we're not saved by baptism, but it is a part of being obedient, and it is identifying ourselves with Christ. And as we see it here, it says, um, to those baptized, it is a sign of their fellowship with Him in His death and resurrection, of their being grafted into Him of remission of sins. And it shows us here uh, Romans three, um, or Romans six three through five that says, "Do not do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead." By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness. And it is this idea that we are identifying this sign, this this symbolism. It's a symbol of showing that we are dead in Christ. We are buried and rose again, this newness, this new life in Christ. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that just before that, Paul is answering the question, of since grace abound, can I just sin? And so he goes back to the baptism and says, look, you've had this sign. You died with Christ. You were raised again in new life. It's the idea of being cleansed. Baptism isn't new to Christianity. Converts to Judaism would undergo what we would call baptism. And... And so that that important aspect of being buried and then rose again tells us something about what we're called to do. I think Calvin also helpfully, they don't go this, um, the Baptist Catechism doesn't say this, but it's also a sign of remembrance for those who have been baptized to re to think again of what they have been baptized into that they are called to do the same to walk to live and walk in the newness of life and to submitting to to god which again kind of answers the question that you proposed at the kind of last part of this paragraph do i need to be saved do I have to be baptized to be saved? No, but God has ordained that when one when person is saved, they are baptized into the church. Mm-hmm. That is how the numbers are added, that you can't live your life apart from the church. There's right. no renegade Christians, no cowboy Christians just out on your own. No, right. God has given all Christians the church in some forms and others, so for maybe missionary, it's just a small team, six people. Mm-hmm. You know, just that, that's all you have. It's still a church, and they're still called to do things as the church. And 
so there's this um, point in which when we, we see the washing and the renewal of our sins, like um, Noah, who was saved by the ark on the seas, we're and kind of the cleansing that comes from it. The baptism has that same idea that we are cleansed from our sins and we now have new life. You can think of Galatians, they have 327, but in Galatians 220, to be yeah. born again, to to have this newness of life in us that we now identify with the one who has saved us. Now we will not have the full benefits of baptism and what it means to have this newness of life. We have to wait until we are glorified and we put off this earthly flesh for this, for the heavenly flesh, but still for the here and now um, to understand that baptism is the sign in which kind of to say it, it's the outward sign of the inward change that God yeah. has renewed our hearts, that he has regrafted, that we have, we have the remission of sins. And now in this submitting ourselves to baptism, we identify what he has done for us, that we were once dead. We're now alive. We were once at intimacy with God. Now we're friends with God. He has forsake. He has cleansed Amen. us. And he has forgiven us. Yeah. And so you have this very visible picture of the gospel in baptism that not only does the person being baptized now get to partake in, in this visual form, but those now who watch it get to remember not only their partaking of it, but also, and the celebration of it and the, the renewed call for life, but also as a sign and testimony of those who don't believe to see what this is and, and then kind of having that joyous occasion of our chains being broken free. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a sign and symbol of the gospel to an unbeliever who's witnessing this, right? The death, burial and resurrection, as Paul tells us in first Corinthians 15, as he gives us a, a overview of the gospel. And he says that Christ died according to the scriptures and then he was buried. And on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. So when someone goes, and they are witnessing a Baptist baptism, because we're, we're going to talk about immersion here uh, a little bit later. But when they see someone go down under the water, this, this identifying with dying to yourself, right, as Christ died for us, was buried and going into this water and then coming back up, newness to life, right? You, you're, you're made new, not from the water. It's not the water that's saving you. When, when someone is has faith in Christ, they are justified at that moment. They've been saved. But as you said, Mike, it's this outward sign of what an inward, uh, something that has taken place inward. And it's this effect that's that's now being shown publicly to, to all people. And another thing with baptism is that I think here in America, we've gotten to this idea because even with Baptists, what, what is the objections we get from our paedo-baptist brothers and sisters? That, well, you baptize unregenerate people sometimes. There's false converts that come forth, right? Um, and that does happen. But what, what, is, what is taking place is a person is making a profession of faith. 
They are coming before a a congregation or coming before people and making this profession and they're being baptized in front of them. Now, in our context, that's easy to do in America. In some contexts in the world today and back in the first century, that wasn't an easy thing to do. But in, even in, in places around the world today, if they are in a Muslim area or a Hindu area that is very hostile towards the gospel of Christ, and they make a profession and then they get baptized, that may cost them very dearly, cost them family relationships, cost them their life possibly. Where in our context, it doesn't happen like that. So I think, I think, and I, you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think that adds to the fact that sometimes people come forward, there's an emotional experience, they feel pretty good about it, they make a decision, they come forward, and some churches want to push baptism so they can put it on their books and show the numbers like, oh, we baptized this many people this, this year. And then therefore, false converts do get baptized. It does happen. Yeah, to kind of go because we're talking about paragraph two, those who are personally professed repentance towards God and faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects for this ordinance. So obviously there is a, um, an apologetic against um, infant baptism. They don't have to say it outright that we don't agree with baptism about with, um, infant baptism, but the idea of someone personally professing repentance is the idea that someone knows what they're doing. And I think, yes, you know, the, the claim is there. But Presbyterians also would baptize what would become false converts. So I don't think that's necessary. Like, that's not really a good argument. And it also, I think, wrongly assumes that a pastor, if he even does a diligent job of examining the person requesting baptism, he's not God. How does he know that this person will fall away in 15 or 20 years, that this was all a sham? And Well, we even see that with Paul. He has Demas and he has others that... Are walking with him now. This is the Apostle Paul. We looked at the Apostle Paul as this this great man of faith, you know, who who experienced so many trials and tribulation um, and afflictions for the sake of the gospel, and he's seen these people leave or depart the faith, people that he invested in, right? And so even the Apostle Paul, like like you're saying, no one's going to know 100 for sure. You can only test people by their fruit and how they're living their lives, but there are people that can be deceptive. You know, they can either be self-deceived and living in certain way, um, doing man-made fruit, like trying to do things for you know whatever reason to be seen well amongst the other people, or maybe they're just self-deceived themselves and they're trying to work for something. But then when those real trials and tribulations come, then things happen and they they walk away and so a pastor isn't perfectly always going to get it right because they could be not that they're being deceived but those people could be deceptive and making you and the rest of the people around them believe that they're a believer and you're accepting that in in baptist churches it's congregational mike i don't know how you guys do it in yours but i know some that that i've been in in the past is when somebody comes forward and they make this uh, profession of repentance towards God and faith in in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, 
they will give a testimony to the pastor. They will recommend them for baptism before the church and the church will vote or say, yes, we accept this or we don't accept this. Um, because there may, or if there's any objections, cause there may be some people that know certain things about this person that others may not know. Right. And so that's another way that the congregational try to guard the, this ordinance and bringing people into the church. I don't know what you, what your thoughts on that, Mike. Yeah. So our church, you meet with the elders, and then it goes up for, if you're not baptized, you're baptized. And then at the end of the service. So our baptism usually happens the beginning of the service and at the end of the service um there is a congregational meeting to vote on these with the elders bringing the um motion to the church so they look for a second and then a, a vote so that's how we do it but i also think and this is where baptist churches and non-denominational churches those are the free church that come from free church um historically can push back on if we'd actually do it and that's church discipline like the charge that you baptize false believers is is minimized when the church actually practice church discipline to say yes we did baptize those people and as christians but they're no longer having this repentance towards God, this faith and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've excommunicating them in hopes that they see their error and come back. And so there is this, um, kind of this, um, kind of to, to negate what is being done. Like if Baptist churches would actually do their job and excommunicate those who do no longer hold or profess the faith, that's kind of our way to say, yeah, we made a mistake, but we're not all knowing. We didn't know because when they came to us, they professed repentance towards God and faith and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ and our proper subjects of this ordinance. And based on how long it usually takes people to come to faith, there is evidence even shown kind of throughout their life that even in a short time can be kind of known. They're usually not just walking to the church for the first time. I mean, it, I guess it could happen. And so kind of what the confession gets at is that we shouldn't just be baptizing people willy-nilly. But there, there is some kind of standard that is held. Yeah, that and there's there's a sense in which we should already be seeing kind of their obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. We should kind of already be seeing the fruits of faith that come from believers. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not 
And the early church, it's documented. I mean, you could profess faith and not get baptized for like a year. Go through catechism classes, catechesis, and all these other things. Because, you know, they they hold this to be true. They, they held it. You have churches now, like Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C., make it very plain that they won't baptize one anyone under the age of 18. I think that's incorrect. But they take these seriously. Because in teenage years, you have this this streak of rebellion. Yeah. Well, I that, even had this with... Go ahead, finish your thought. Sorry. That um, shouldn't be, but happens. That kind of age of moving out of being a kid and into adulthood. And so churches can see how this is. But I think the, the finding is that the person knows and and the fruit is already evident of what's going on yeah and now i, I know our again our pedo baptist brothers and sisters will maybe um their hair will go up they'll be ready for a fight with this but i've struggled with my own children when my my teenagers one who's out of the house now and um, one that's in the house um when Years and years ago, maybe maybe it was like four or five years ago, they made a profession and like the pastor in the church that we was at was really excited and like, oh, let's get them baptized. This is going to be great. And I, and I was hesitant. I was like, no, let's wait because they grew up in a church. This isn't the first time they've made a profession. And I wanted to be very careful and cautious because I know this is, I don't want to just say, oh yeah, go do this. Because I also knew my own experience of growing up in church, saying a prayer more than once in an Awana club, saying a prayer when I went off to church camp, and then people saying you need to get baptized and then going forward and being baptized. And I was not a a believer. I was a false convert, right? Um, I didn't have true, true, genuine change in my life. And so there was that part that was conflicted in me wanting to say, I don't want to withhold this means of grace to uh, back from them. But I also want to make sure that I'm not just being hasty in letting them get baptized and then find out in a month or two months that they don't profess faith. And today, neither one of those children are walking with the Lord, right? And so the evidence, you know, kind of goes towards that they're not regenerate and they will, they, they know the things that they've been taught, but they reject the truth, right? And so I didn't want to just go ahead and baptize them and then have them. But at the same time, I didn't want to withhold it if they were genuine. So as a parent, I, I honestly, I was struggling with, what do I do as a parent in this? Because I, I agree with you. I don't think waiting till somebody's 18 is necessarily the right answer. But at the same time, as parents, you do want to be cautious. Because we, we do take this serious. It doesn't save anyone, but it is an ordinance and, and that, that God has instituted, that Christ has instituted to his church. So we do want to take it seriously. Yeah, and think we could agree and hopefully our Presbyterian friends would agree with us that the easy believism hasn't helped this. I mean, there's jokes about how not the FBI could find 
Southern Baptists that are members at a Southern Baptist church. Mm-hmm. And there is um, that kind of um, that that tension there. You know, that I think serious Baptists think about. And it, it's not easy. And I think the parents are helpful in that. And to Eric's comment, like, what about the case of the Ethiopian in Acts 8? He didn't say, I'll be back in one year and checking up on you. And I mean, you know, I think there is a case there of a more immediacy to it. I'm not, like I said, I don't want to say that the early church is doing it right to begin with. But these are questions that they thought of, and they thought it was best to wait a year before they baptized someone, thinking that, you know, kind of that this is something. You, you baptize professing believers and make sure they need to know. And so there is kind of that that pressing there. So Tim says he is eager... He was eager to a boy. I'd say his life was changed and apparent even at the moment, which is not always the case. Um, and, you know, I think it's a valid explanation. But also, um, I can't even think of who talked to him. Philip. Um, Philip, yeah. I mean, and that time, maybe Philip had some promptings we don't know about. You know, this is a time the New Testament isn't written. It's early on. The sign gifts are in present. Maybe he had a word from the Lord. Um, well, the Spirit did and, move him up beside him to where yeah. he was able to say, and hey, you're reading took- Isaiah. Do you understand it? And yeah, and then took him right out of there. And he, and he was out, going so. back. He was headed towards Ethiopia. You know, that's that's another sign thing there, too. But yeah, I, I think I think that those things kind of come into play as you were saying with the early church, because of the false converts and wanting to make sure people are genuinely believers. I, I've heard stories when I used to, um, I used to listen to uh, Voice of the Martyrs and there was another um, another ministry, I can't think of it at the top of my head now, that dealt with persecuted Christians around the world. And they would be very selective as to who they allowed come into their congregation because they didn't want to let people come in that we're going to then turn them in to the to the officials, the government officials, so that then they would they would be arrested or, you know, murdered for their faith, right? And so that could have been a possibility of wanting to make sure that these people genuinely were believers, and there was some time to to to, to understand whether or not they were displaying fruit. You know, and I, I think that's the thing. That's the tension that we're talking about here is, is trying to be cautious with because look at it as people who do evangelism. We, we we share the gospel with people, go out on the streets and talk with people. I don't know how many people tell me they're a Christian. And you start asking just in conversation, you start talking to them and they're like, oh, I don't believe Jesus is God. How are you a Christian? Right. But yet these people were in a church baptized and they believe they're right with God. And even with baptism. I know many Baptists, unfortunately, 
many Baptists who, even within my own family, um, when a family member died many, many years ago, many of my family members, and they, they went to Baptist churches, said, oh, he was baptized, so we know he's going to go to heaven. That's not how it works. Again, baptism doesn't save. And, and an evidence um, for that, if we look at <clears throat> some of these scriptures here, you know, Acts 2.41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to the church about 3,000 souls. And see, they received the word. They received the gospel that was being preached, Acts 8.12. But then when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. So they believed. Again, there's this belief that is happening before the baptism. Acts 18, 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. They believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And so, again, that's just some more proof text. I wanted to kind of put those out there as well for those who may think that somehow baptism saves. Yeah, and I know they'll probably go to it. I don't even know if they've... Well, you can go to you can go to Acts thirty six, and it says, um, "Yeah, oh, not Acts, Mark sixteen. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned." Yeah, and well, I think another one is John three five. I think they would go to for water, um, but that that aspect of John um, in John chapter three is talking about regeneration, and you go back to Ezekiel thirty six twenty five and on, and that's dealing with the sprinkling, you know, clean water. And, he, and it is God who is transforming or regenerating the heart of an individual. And so that's not there saying in Mark 16 that you have to be baptized. It says whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe is condemned. It doesn't say does not believe and not baptized is condemned. <clears throat> yeah, and they would also go to, you got First Peter uh, 3.21, baptism, which corresponds to this, and this is about Noah now saves you now is a yeah. removal of dirt from the body, but also an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having subject to him. Um, again, that's the connection between baptism and Noah and the removal of sin. That's, I mean, that's what the flood was that the height of human sin was so great, God destroy it to restart it with eight souls. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And so that's the appeal that is given. That Because God does saved him. It was God who shut the door of the ark to save him from his judgment. And so you see again that appeal kind of going back to the first part of this chapter of what the point of baptism is and which just to keep moving because we're running out of time quickly is that this is done with water the outward element to be used in this ordinance is water in which the individual is to be baptized in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit 
And I think that's very important too right there because you have a lot of oneness, Pentecostals. Um, and and I'm, I'm not sure if, any, if others do this other than oneness or the, the holiness kind of movement that will say always that it has to be baptized in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, Meaning, and that really is just a reference to His authority. We're doing it in the authority of Christ, mm-hmm. but Christ gives us in Matthew twenty-eight that we are to baptize in the name singular of singular of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that's how Christ has told us to perform this this ordinance. Yeah, you have references to the baptism of the Spirit, the baptism of Christ, and have that. But I think it is important that the the Great Commission, as we would say, has this idea of baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Really kind of, obviously, with the Trinitarian mindset is that you have this one being who is three separate persons. And in this one being, though, it's not though they're conflicted, that they, as one, save sinners. And you think of Romans 5.8. God showed his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That we are to by the power of the spirit to work out our salvation in fear and troubling, knowing it's the Lord, the father who works through us. And so when we, when we think about, again, this brings into what has already been discussed in the confession as that we believe in a triune God with three persons who are equal in essence. And they have their, own persons with one will and they they move together they do things together not at odds and so we are called by christ to baptize in this triune god as he has worked out salvation from eternity past to eternity future And so, again, this would show and tell us that you would have to have some sort of understanding of the Trinity to be saved, to understand and to know and to have faith in Christ, kind of as the first um, paragraph said in this chapter. I don't want to get into it, but maybe that's why oneness will say, in the name of Jesus, you have to say Jesus, because then, because they believe Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Holy Spirit, and, and so forth. All right, so paragraph four. Immersion or dipping of the person in water is necessary for this ordinance to be administered properly. Now, as Baptists, there's no surprise that we do believe in immersion, right? Um, this is, as we've already talked about, you're identifying with Christ in baptism going under the water, death, and then new life, right? And so it is this, as we've already mentioned, when when this is being performed, when a baptism is taking place within a church congregation, 
then those who are are there observing that are not believers, hopefully in these churches, the gospel's being proclaimed in the sermon. That's leading up to when they're going to baptize uh, these individuals. And then the testimony of these individuals proclaiming that they have come to faith in Christ who died for their sins, was buried and rose again. They're going to hear this multiple times, and then they're going to see this imagery of going under the water, death, and then new life. You're, you're muted, Mike. Sorry, I've been doing so good getting my move up. I have a little nasal. I'm trying to keep the audio clean. I finally messed up. Um, and this is not like Eastern Orthodox either, because they do immersion infant baptism. And it's pretty intense to watch it. I don't know if you've ever seen videos of it. I don't know if I could watch it. Um, where they take like an eight-year-old baby, and it's very quick. Eight under, months up, under, Yeah. I don't maybe it's eight months. I don't know. They take a baby and it's very quick in and out of the water. Obviously, um, they don't try to drown them. It's not like how adults are baptized or even kids. Um, but again, I think you see it. And really um, what this paragraph affirms is that the Greek word baptizo means immersion or or like dipping the person in mm -hmm. and there's really very or even not even non-existence any time baptizo even kind of references this idea of sprinkling or this others that it's majority use is that Someone is something, someone or something has been immersed, has been gone under. Which I think makes this debate hard because we're literally baptism is a translation of the Greek word. Just like deacon. I think that we have the same issue about, you know, how do we understand deacon in Romans and deacon in um, 1 Peter 3. Especially this is in light of can women be deacons? Kind of the argument there. Which I say no. Um, and so I think baptism kind of falls, unfortunately, in the same, but it's so important um, to, to go and to think about. But that, I mean, the Baptists are just affirming what they think the scripture says that we are to be baptized and to be immersed, which is the example set before us in Christ. It is the example set before us in Acts. And the early church for about 300 years did the same thing. It's not until later on do you see infant baptism really kind of catch a hold, especially with Augustine. And I had one church history professor argue in a fake conversation that he would probably want to have with R.C. Sproul um, about how baptism or infant baptism follows this kind of same trajectory as the church 
starting to deny justification by faith alone. And there are similarities in kind of this slow slide in it. I mean, even when you read Calvin, and I haven't looked much into how they say it, he mentions how kind of for an infant baptism, it has this kind of salvific element. Now, I'm no Calvin scholar, but it is interesting he uses that terminology. And again, and what I think, I mean, obviously I'm a Baptist, so I think the Baptists are right. I think that's what the scripture has to say about it, that the baptism is given to us as entrance to the church. Um, that is ordained by God. And you don't see infant baptism. You kind of have to, it seems to me, read into, take your theology and kind of read it into the text. And maybe Baptists, I mean, probably Baptists do the same thing. So this isn't just a, a carte blanche. This is probably just me being blinded to what I'm accusing Presbyterians to do. But what do you think of the Philippian jailer. Again, the text seems that they all had faith, that mm -hmm. it wasn't just the Philippian jailer, but his whole family, and it, they were baptized. But did he have little kids? Like, what does the text say and don't say? I think it implies they all believe. Yeah. But, but like you said, how yeah. old his kids were, how yeah, old his household was. And it's not like, you know, he. He may have been like a 40-year-old uh, jailer with adult children who came and believed. Like, we just don't – we don't know about enough about his life to say, well, yeah, children were baptized. And that's why I don't find it convincing. It's kind of the, the one example of Acts. <clears throat> but the pattern of Acts is – they hear the gospel, they respond to the gospel, they're baptized, and they're brought into the church. That seems to be what is emphasized over and over and over again in Acts. In Philippian jailer is no difference. He heard the message, he responded the message, and he responded with baptism and was added to the church. And, you know, this debate will not be settled probably here on Earth. It doesn't mean that I think that, that Presbyterians are not Christians. They may not be able to take communion in my church, but there doesn't mean they're not Christians. And that this is a healthy debate to think about and to edify, try to edify each other and to think about what does the Bible actually say about these things? And how and striving together on the basis of the gospel to know how are we to act faithfully in this regard. I think there's a lot of times that maybe I'm not, I'll say it too, as gracious to my Presbyterian friends, whom I was one of them at one time. Now I grew up Presbyterian and... I was convinced with the scripture 
and asking for wisdom from the Spirit. I wasn't baptized right away after I believed. It was several years. I had to work through this. And I finally was baptized as a believer. Um, making the public statement that I did not think the baptism I received at my parents' Presbyterian church was a valid baptism. And so I, I come at this knowing the struggle, trying to think about, really, am I, do I need to be baptized again or do I not? Do I believe Presbyterian kind of covenant theology and how that expressed in baptism or do I hold more to a Baptist understanding? I think those are questions that we ask the Lord and we search for answers and we hope and just seek the Lord's wisdom and knowing how this is. And you may be a Fred Malone type who is a Baptist, became Presbyterian, and now he's a Baptist again, convinced of um, believer's baptism. Yeah. Well, I am a Baptist, fully convinced that that is the way that uh, we are to be baptized, those who believe, because I do not believe there's any unbelievers in the new covenant. So that being said, I got a couple questions that I asked on Facebook today, and I kind of wanted to, to talk a little bit about them before we end. So just quickly, we'll try to go through these because we are going a little bit over. But the one question I asked was, if a person was baptized as a believer, then they turned out to be a false convert. And then they truly do get saved later on in life. Should they be baptized? Because if they were baptized as a false convert, does that count? And I think what Mike already said was, yes, he got baptized, you know, baptized as a Presbyterian, but then became a, a genuine believer in, in Christ and was convicted and realized he needed to have baptism. Same thing with me. I grew up in a church, um, was baptized as a young teenager. And then when I truly got saved and I went back to church, I was listening to sermons and I was growing. I was, as, as I was walking out while I was working, I was just listening and growing and growing more. And I went to my pastor cause I was convicted and I said, I need to be baptized. He said, well, you've been baptized before. And, uh, it was a Baptist church, but they thought I was just a backslidden Christian that came back to the faith. And I said, no, I wasn't a believer. And I'm, I'm fully convicted that I need to be baptized. And so they, I was already a member of the church, but then they baptized me. Um, <clears throat> because I was fully convinced and convicted that the baptism that I had as a young uh, individual was not valid um, because it was believers that me making that profession and truly believing in Christ then being baptized. And I think you say the same on that, Mike, because you'd already mentioned, uh, you know, growing up Presbyterian. So the other one that I had uh, asked is, who has the authority to baptize a believer? Anyone or those who have been ordained? And this can be a tricky question for some people. I do believe that, as it says, immersion or dipping of the person in, in water is necessary for this ordinance to be administered properly. So you got to have water. It's immersion properly. But even when you go to the beginning, when it says baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, Christ instituted his church. Now, I do believe that all Christians are to go share the gospel. Personally, I'm moving more towards the Great Commission being given to the 
apostles there as more of an institute of to the church. You make disciples, you baptize them, you teach them all that they're to be taught. And so that therefore we are doing this within the local church. Now, I do believe there's there's times where there's circumstances that maybe don't allow that, but they're not the norm. And so I do think that when it comes to who can baptize, I do believe it's through the ordinance of the church or as, as, as an ordinance of the church and through the elders of that church. That's my personal conviction. Mike, where are you? This is one um, I'm not completely convinced. I would hold to what you have. I think um, that even in being wise, having pastors and elders who are in charge of the church and are called to oversee the church, like the um, what God or what Jesus instituted the apostles to be as ones who kind of loose and bind, um, mm-hmm. you know, who it enters and who doesn't. Um, even in church discipline, the language is repeated in Luke and Matthew 18. And so there is an, an authority given to pastors, to elders, um, to take charge of their church and then and to oversee it. And I think that's where um, I've, I've kind of landed with it. And I would say that any elder could. It doesn't have to necessarily be like the preaching pastor right. doing it. If he's an elder of the church or a pastor, however your kind of governing body is in your church, I believe in plurality elders, so that would kind of what I would go with, that they all have the authority to baptize and not just the pa- preaching pastor, although mm-hmm. that's the one who does it the most, although one of the best moments in my church and baptism is when one of our elders got to baptize his adult son, his daughter-in-law and his granddaughter. And there's just seeing the joy of his face, not just as a pastor, but as a father and a grandpa that comes about it. And, and, And those are wonderful experiences. But I think there is that important element of the church, the elders of the church keeping watch. They should be the ones doing kind of the interviewing. It shouldn't be you wouldn't want someone else kind of doing it that has no authority in church. So that's kind of where I've landed on that. Um, with it, I do think um, I haven't always held this position. I've kind of, I held that, well, the Great Commission is given to everyone, so anyone should be able to. Um, But as I have further reformed in my beliefs, um, I've come to kind of hold more to it should be an elder, and that's kind of their proper place as ones who keep watch over the souls of the church that they're in charge of. Yeah, and then the the last one we'll, we'll, we'll ask here is, 
if you are one who holds to believers baptism and you are invited to a family member a friend's infant baptism ceremony would you attend for me um if it was roman catholic no i would not attend if it was any type of baptismal regeneration kind of view like a church of christ or um, someone who actually believes that baptism is saving i would not attend um if it was my presbyterian brothers and sisters that's one i'm not 100 percent sure on what i would do um i have some presbyterian brothers and sisters that i know really well and so like i was talking to my wife about this i don't know if they had children if i would just say no i'm not coming um if they invited me but at the same time i'm not 100 percent sure on what i would do with that as because I don't believe it's baptism, so I don't want to be disingenuous. But if they're a friend that I truly love and do believe is a brother in Christ, and their family would be dear to me, you know what I mean. But so that's when I, I do struggle with what I would do, and I really don't know at this moment if I would not go or go for a Presbyterian brother that I knew well. Yeah, I don't know. Part of me is like, should rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Um, it maybe provide opportunity for discussion. Um, you could always treat it like a waterless baptism, or just do, like it's a baby baby dedication. Yeah, the baby got a little wet. They spilled they spilled the water a little bit. It's okay, you know, and and hold to that. Um, but yeah, I think it's. It's different and it's probably different for each person. And this is where, you know, we can lean on James too and ask for wisdom that comes from above and how we should navigate these relationships and to do it in a way that is Christ honoring and God glorifying. And that's, and it's hard and it's situational and each person is going to be different. Um, you know, it's, I have a lot of Catholic family on my mom's side. If we were ever in the area, maybe, you know, because of, I don't get to see them very often. And this would be an opportunity to bring the gospel to them. Um, again, I think it's going to be depend on situations and like, I'm not going to drive all the way out to Southwest Nebraska for a baptism. You know, that's just not going to happen. It's too far. But, uh, you know, if I'm already in the area of visiting family, you know, I could see possibly doing it just to kind of be supportive, kind of to, to rejoice with them, um, and maybe offer my prayers up to God during that time that this child will come to know the truth and be baptized as a believer. You know, you just—I've been told you're supposed to pray specifically. So that's what Joel Osteen keeps telling me. So you know, <laughs> just just doing it. We um, don't support Joel Osteen here at G220 Radio. Joe. Those, yeah, Joking. for those maybe new people just tuning in and uh, just make sure we. The time I contracted <clears throat> out for TBN, different show. Um, but. You know, and I think that's that's where you have to land. There is no definitive answer. This is what you should and should not do. 
Um, but you should seek the Lord and seek wisdom and, and how to do it. If you're convicted that you shouldn't go, you shouldn't go. Don't cause your conscience. Don't go against your conscience. Um, and so I think that's kind of the advice I would give um, with it. And it's going to be, I mean, that's the Christian life. It's full of, you can have a whole range of things you can do. But what does your conscience say? What does the wisdom that you have that God has given to you says? And when you don't know, you have one who knows all things and can give you wisdom that is not from the earth, but from above. And I mean, that's just a good to remember for all things um, as we travel this life in this weary world. Yeah. So that has been G220 Radio's program for tonight. If you agree with us on believer's baptism, if you believe that only those who have made a profession of faith are to be baptized, please let us know in the comments below of this video. Um, and if you don't, you can still let us know below in the comments of this video. Share it um, with your friends on social media. If this has been encouraging to you, if this has been edifying to you, we would love for you to share that. Uh, if not, and you don't think this was a good program, you can just give us your feedback at g220radio at gmail.com. Again, it's g220radio at gmail.com. Or you can hit us up on Twitter. You can hit us up on Facebook. And you can hit us up on YouTube in the comments below the video. So uh, if you do that, we will get your feedback. And we do see it. And we don't always see it on YouTube right away because we don't usually log into the g220radio uh, YouTube channel as often. Um, but we will see it. We will get the emails that come through and we try to do our best to respond. Uh, if you want to listen to the program via podcast, you could do so on Podbean, iTunes. Well, it's Apple, Apple podcasts now. Um, I think it's been that for a while, but, um, <clears throat> on any podcast catcher, you can find us, uh, as we put these shows up and they air, uh, for you to listen in that venue. Um, but again, that's been G220 Radio for tonight. Next week, we're going to have Chris Jones on the program, and we're going to be talking about his new album uh, that is new out in 2021, uh, Note to Self. And so uh, that's going to be a good program next week. I uh, hope you can join us. And again, any questions, comment, or feedback, send them to g220radio at gmail.com, and we will do our best to respond. Hope you had a encouraging program tonight. And we thank you for joining in with us. I was trying to fill in as I got my uh, thing over there to end it. So good night. God bless. It's been G220 Radio. I uh, hope you've been at five. All right. Oh.